Well, hello there. You're listening to the JACCP podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes, the Senior Associate Editor for the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. And today I'm playing podcast host. In my day job, I'm Professor of Pharmacy Practice and Director of Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. And I'm delighted to welcome you all here today and my dear colleague, Dr. Brent Reed, to our show. Dr. Reed and I were on faculty at the University of Maryland for a number of years, and and we've collaborated on several scholarly projects. Brent has returned to school full-time to pursue a PhD in organizational science at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And recently, Brent submitted a paper to JACCP that outlined some of the key factors that contribute to high levels of stress in the workplace, particularly in healthcare today. And drawing on the growing body of literature related to workplace design, Brent's article, which is entitled Turning the Tide, Addressing Threats to Pharmacists' Well-Being Through Work Redesign outlines a number of things supervisors and organizational leaders can do to improve working conditions for pharmacists and, and frankly, all health professionals. So, Brent, I'm so happy you agreed to accept our invitation to talk about your article on the JACCP podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Stuart. So, Brent, let's let's talk a little bit about organizational science. I, I doubt many of our listeners are familiar with this field. So what exactly is organizational science? What kinds of phenomena do organizational scientists examine? And how did you get interested in this field of study? I mean, your background is clinical pharmacy. You're a uh, clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology. So it seems like a big career change for you. Well, you're certainly right about it being a big change for me personally, but I think that there's a lot that organizational science has to offer the field of healthcare. And in fact, I think some people in healthcare are already doing organizational science. Uh, They might just not be calling it that. Uh, Organizational science is a multidisciplinary field that's focused on understanding how people think act and feel in organizational settings, and in particular, the workplace. Now, it includes disciplines like organizational psychology and management, uh, as well as branches of broader fields like sociology and communication when researchers in those fields are, are focusing on organizational processes. Now, organizational scientists, uh, they may study individual level phenomena like uh, stress, motivation, and performance, um, or they may study uh, higher level phenomena like leadership and teams and, and organizational culture. Now, what got me so interested in this field is, is that I noticed you know, how much of what we do as health professionals is affected by those organizational phenomena. You know, for example, even if you design the, the safest and most effective plan for a patient, uh, it may still uh, fail to materialize if there are, uh, let's say, uh, breakdowns in, in how the healthcare team functions, uh, or if, if clinicians are so burned out that they make a mistake that, that ends up harming a patient. And, and it was trying to figure out those problems uh, that, that ultimately led me to pursue this career change. 
So as you're describing your paper, the, the wave of resignations and high turnover seen in many health professions, including pharmacy, over the past three to four years has actually been ongoing for at least a decade. I, I know many of my colleagues feel stressed and emotionally fatigued, and national surveys indicate that job dissatisfaction is is very common for those who work in corporate community pharmacy settings, for example. What's the source of these problems? Why are so many pharmacists and health professionals so unhappy with their work? We could probably spend the, the entire episode discussing just that question alone, because there are so many factors contributing to why health professionals feel the way they do. But I think one overarching theme that ties most of those factors together is that our workloads have grown in terms of both quantity and complexity, but the number of people and the the amount of resources needed to manage that workload has simply not kept pace. Um, As an illustration of this, there's a figure that I like to show in some of my presentations that uh, lists the number of anticoagulants that I needed to know when I was in pharmacy school but then how that list grew year after year after year, not to mention the the various labs and and other characteristics that I needed to learn in order to to choose the right agent in an individual patient. And I'm sure the listeners of this podcast could do the same for their area of practice. And that's just counting the medications themselves. the, The various tasks that go along with managing medications has also gotten more complex. Uh, You take teamwork as an example. You know, we know that interdisciplinary care is better for patients because, you know, it brings together everybody's expertise, but there's a lot that goes into making a team work that that falls outside of our uh, day-to-day duties as pharmacists, physicians, nurses, and so on. Another aspect that makes health professionals work particularly demanding is that it often has an emotional element to it. Uh, You mentioned community pharmacists earlier. Uh, Being the public's most accessible health professional, uh, that's a badge of honor, I think, for a lot of pharmacists. But being out there on the front lines often means uh, bearing the brunt of people's frustrations uh, with the cost of their care, uh, navigating our complex healthcare system. Uh, And when patients unload those frustrations, you know, pharmacists can't react. They have to remain calm and, and considerate, which often means they have to, to bury their true feelings, their, their true reactions uh, deep down. Uh, and so this is a form of emotional labor that we, uh, we call surface acting, and it can be particularly harmful uh, to people. Now, these are just a couple of examples of how our work has gotten more complex. But one of the amazing things about humans is, is that we have this incredible capacity for bouncing back from negative experiences like these if and the key the the key word there is if we face them in reasonable amounts and right now they're just not in reasonable amounts uh, this this idea of of doing more with less is, is just not a sustainable solution because our time and our energy uh, they're finite uh, and there comes a point when the demands of work can overwhelm even the most resilient uh, among us. And I think that's where a lot of people in healthcare are right now, um, which is why we're seeing so much burnout and turnover in pharmacy and beyond. 
so many people have talked about burnout over the last few years that, that frankly, some people are getting a little turned off by all the programming at national conferences and the explosion of apps and other resources intended to address our well-being. But burnout is not the same thing as stress. Indeed, stress can be motivating and energizing in the right amount. So what's the distinction between and the interrelationships between job dissatisfaction, stress, and burnout? I'm really glad you asked that question, Stuart, because you know, the last thing that we need right now is for people to, uh, to start ignoring burnout, um, especially given the evidence that uh, it might only be getting worse. Now, when it comes to distinguishing between job dissatisfaction, stress, and burnout, uh, stress is probably the easiest to start with because uh, it's more of a process, uh, whereas the other two are, are states of mind and, and states of feeling. Uh, stress is a cognitive, emotional, and a physiologic process that results when we're uh, exposed to potential threats in our environment known as stressors. Uh, and prolonged exposure to those stressors can result in a variety of harmful effects, which we uh, refer to as strains. Now, on the stressor side of the equation, most experts agree that stressors can be grouped in at least two categories, uh, challenge stressors and hindrance stressors. Now, both types can cause strain, but the harmful effects of challenge stressors uh, can be partially offset because uh, they can provide us with a sense of growth and a sense of achievement, which, as you mentioned, can be energizing or motivating. Now, hindrance stressors, on the other hand, they only impede our growth and achievement, and, and so they consistently result in strain. Now, burnout is a type of psychological strain, but before I get to that, I just want to emphasize uh, the strain can be physical too. Uh, prolonged exposure to stress has been uh, linked to everything from impaired immune function uh, to pain to cardiovascular events. So burnout isn't the only reason why organizations should be concerned about the stress that people uh, may be facing at work. Now, moving on to burnout. Uh, burnout is a negative work-related state of mind uh, consisting of at least two core symptoms exhaustion and negative attitudes towards work, like cynicism or disengagement. Now, exhaustion is feeling depleted by work, um, whereas cynicism or disengagement are attempts to uh, psychologically distance ourselves from those demands. Uh, and unfortunately, that often also means distancing ourselves from our patients uh, and, and our coworkers. Now, the other experience you mentioned was job dissatisfaction, uh, which is a work attitude. Um, so it's a, a fairly stable evaluation of our job. So although we might experience good days and bad days in terms of, of how we think and, and how we feel about our work, uh, job dissatisfaction really reflects the accumulation of those experiences and our uh, overall view of the job. Probably the easiest way to remember uh, this, the distinctions between job dissatisfaction and burnout is to think of the direction of the relationship. Uh, so job dissatisfaction is our view towards the work, whereas burnout is more a form of harm originating from the work. So, Brent, in, in the paper, you describe the Job Demands and Resources Framework, or JDR model for short. And the model is pretty intuitive, I think. It makes a whole lot of sense. 
basically when the demands of a job outstrip the resources available to the person who is responsible for completing the work, this leads to job-related stress. And if it's excessive and goes unaddressed, eventually it either can lead to someone leaving their employer, or if there's a lack of other employment opportunities, or the same working conditions are the norm in the industry, it can lead to burnout. Tell us a little bit about, about the model. Well, you're exactly right, Stuart. And some of your listeners may already be familiar with the job demands resources model uh, because it served as uh, one of the guiding frameworks for the report on clinician burnout published by uh, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Now, personally, I like the JDR model for a couple of reasons. Um, first, uh, it's become one of the most well-supported frameworks for understanding workplace stress, and not just its causes and effects, but also the things that we could potentially do uh, to intervene. Uh, and in the paper, I described some of the research based on the JDR model and how those findings could be applied uh, to pharmacy, a pra uh, pharmacy practice. Now, the second reason I like the JDR model is because it's a, a simple, practical way for thinking about the various strategies available to us to reduce the risk of burnout. And as you mentioned, uh, when job demands like workload or, or time pressure uh, exceed our capacity to deal with them, uh, that's when burnout and other strains can result, which can then lead to impaired job performance, increased turnover, and a whole host of other organizational outcomes. Um, however, if people are given the resources to deal with those demands, like uh, the autonomy to make decisions about their work or uh, an adequate level of support from their supervisors, it not only reduces the risk of burnout, it also increases the likelihood of experiencing positive work-related states uh, like engagement. Now, as the name suggests, the JDR model has historically focused on job resources, uh, but most recent iterations uh, do recognize that personal resources like resilience and self-efficacy uh, can also reduce the risk of burnout if they coincide with an adequate level of job resources. So in other words, you, know, you can be the, the most resilient person in the world, but if your work environment is still lacking in important job resources like autonomy and support, you're still at risk of burning out. And unfortunately, uh, most of the efforts to address burnout in pharmacy have focused exclusively on building personal resources. And while those approaches are, are certainly well-intentioned, you know, we don't really have a lot of evidence to suggest that, that pharmacists are, are lacking in personal resources like uh, resilience. And, and if anything, research from our physician colleagues uh, suggests that health professionals are already more resilient than the average person. Uh, even if pharmacists were lacking in personal resources, uh, focusing on those uh, simply isn't enough. And that's ultimately what led me to write this paper and, and also inspired the paper's title. I think in order for us to make meaningful improvements to pharmacists' well-being at work, we have to make changes to the work environment. Well, that's a perfect segue because before we conclude today, I, I want to talk about solutions. And in your paper, you propose a number of changes in the work conditions, things such as reducing job demands and increasing resources that would help to alleviate the chronic stress that so many of us are experiencing nowadays. And, I, and I'm lucky. I have a lot of autonomy in my work as a faculty member 
And I know increased autonomy is one strategy that can increase job satisfaction, but empowering frontline workers to make more decisions about how and when they work is but one way to improve working conditions. So what are some of the solutions that you think we should be exploring? Well, I think autonomy is a great place to start because it is one of the most well-studied characteristics for reducing the risk of burnout. One of the most appealing things about working in a profession like pharmacy is the promise of autonomy. Uh, But unfortunately, that's not the case for a lot of pharmacists, particularly those who are working in chain community pharmacies. You know, their working environment is what we would call a strong situation, which means that there are a lot of constraints on their ability to make decisions about their work. And that's likely part of the reason why the rates of burnout among pharmacists working in chain community pharmacies are so much higher than their counterparts working in independent pharmacies, uh, despite both of those groups facing uh, pretty similar stressors. Uh, Independent pharmacists may also derive uh, greater amounts of social support uh, from the relationships that they're able to build with with their patients and with prescribers. Now, more autonomy and social support, I think that would certainly go a long way to curbing the rates of burnout that we see among pharmacists working uh, in chain community settings. Uh, But your listeners who might work in those settings, you know, they know that those kinds of changes those aren't things that they can do on their own. Those are changes that have to be made by organizational leaders, which is one of the main points that I, that I make in the paper. If we really want to do something about burnout, it's going to take leaders redesigning the work environment to restore that balance of job demands and resources. And so w- what are some of the specific ways uh, that leaders can do that? Since we've already talked about community pharmacists, I think it might uh, help to uh, take an example from a different practice setting. Uh, So a pharmacist working in an ambulatory care setting was recently telling me that her entire day is taken up by clinic appointments. And in fact, she and her colleagues, they often have to work through lunch and stay late just to complete all the administrative tasks that relate to uh, those appointments. Now, in addition to that, she was recently asked to start taking on students and residents, as well as contribute to uh, some of the organization's quality initiatives, but without any changes to her clinic schedule uh, to accommodate that additional work. And so this is an example of role conflict, where uh, the efforts to fulfill responsibilities in one role means being unable to fulfill responsibilities in other roles. So really, her only option here would be just to do some of that work on her own time, which is itself another form of role conflict, because it would mean sacrificing some of the time that that she dedicates to her roles outside of work, like being a partner or, or being a parent. Now, like the chain community pharmacist that we were discussing earlier, you know, this isn't a problem that she can resolve on her own. It, it takes a manager stepping in, uh, rebalancing those demands and resources. Now, in terms of reducing demands, her manager could work with the clinic to uh, block off a few hours each week so she can tend to these additional responsibilities. And some organizations use practice uh, partners or practice teams to facilitate uh, things like that. Another alternative would be to increase resources, like providing additional rewards for taking on some of those additional duties. 
Now, one particularly powerful resource is fairness, which is uh, the extent to which people believe that they are being treated fairly uh, in their organization. Now, in this person's situation, there is another clinic where pharmacists do have time built in for these other activities. So by making some of those changes that I mentioned earlier, her manager would not only be de- uh, be decreasing demands, um, she would also be increasing resources by making the workload uh, more equitable across the board. Now, as these examples illustrate, you know, there's not a, a silver bullet that will uh, solve burnout across the profession or even across an entire organization. Uh, but to, to help leaders get started, in a paper, I outline a process for work redesign. It, it involves things like listening to people to understand the factors that may be driving their burnouts, uh, brainstorming ways to address those factors, uh, and then prototyping and evaluating whether those changes actually work. And and I recognize that 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 might sound like a lot of work, and I can understand why uh, leaders might be reticent to, to put that much effort into addressing burnout. But if the rates of turnover are any indication, uh, taking these steps is it's not just the right thing to do. There's also a business case uh, to be made for it. Now, I, I know that some leaders are worried about the potential costs of uh, addressing burnout, uh, but the strategies that have been shown to be the most effective, you know, some of which we've talked about today, things like being a supportive boss, uh, making the workplace more fair, uh, giving people more of a voice in the decisions affecting their work, those strategies, they don't cost anything. Well, Brent, as always, it's it's great to talk with you. And I've learned so much from your paper. I I truly hope all of our listeners, but particularly people in leadership positions, will read your paper and get a better understanding of the key issues that are driving poor working conditions for many health professionals and taking steps when and where they can to mitigate the demands and provide more resources to frontline workers so that we can effectively address the healthcare needs of the people we serve. Again, the paper is entitled Turning the Tide, Addressing Threats to Pharmacist Well-Being Through Work Redesign, and it was published this month, July 2023, in the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. The paper is available for your reading pleasure on the JACCP website. Thanks for being with us today.